coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I think we can call these experiences self-transcendent experiences. This is like an umbrella term. And self-transcendent experiences, there's a lot of different ones, but they seem similar in that they're all intensely altered states of consciousness involving some degree of self-diminishment and feelings of connectedness. And these range in intensity. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 152 of Passion Struck, one of the top health and fitness podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. In case you missed my podcast from last week, they featured Kathy Heller, the phenomenal podcast host of The Kathy Heller Show, where we discussed the importance of knowing yourself and living with intention. I also had on former Army Ranger Jesse Gould, and we discuss the Heroic Hearts Foundation that he leads and its focus on helping veterans and first responders who are suffering from post-traumatic stress with psychedelics. If you love these episodes or today's, we would so love it if you would forward these to friends or family members. It makes such a huge difference to getting the word out there, as do your ratings. And we are so thankful for your continued support. Those ratings go such a long way in helping the popularity. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Dr. David B. Yaden earned his doctorate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and is currently an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His work in the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research focuses on psychology, neuroscience, and psychopharmacology of so-called spiritual self-transcendence and other positively transformative experiences. Specifically, he is interested in understanding how these altered states of consciousness can result in long-term changes to well-being, mental health, and pro-social behavior while also studying their risks. He has a forthcoming book called The Varieties of Spiritual Experiences, 21st Century research and perspectives with Oxford University Press. His scientific and scholarly work has been covered by outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. In our interview, we discuss what are self-transcendent experiences and how does awe differ from being in a flow state, a peak experience, or a mythical experience. Dr. Yaden explains how we transform during a self-transcendence experience and why they can be difficult to define. And we do this through the lens of the overview effect, something that astronauts experience in space as they're looking down on Earth. We discuss how his mentors, Andrew Newberg, Martin Seligman, and Roland Griffiths shaped his path, his upcoming book 
with Andrew, as well as his interest in psychedelics and the Psychedelic Research Center at Johns Hopkins. I asked Dr. Yaden about his interactions with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and why he considers the Dalai Lama's teachings to be revolutionary. We end by discussing the phenomenon of being called and why this transcendent sense of purpose is surprisingly ordinary. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited to welcome Dr. David Yaden to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, David. Glad to be here. I have been wanting to interview you for quite a while now. And recently, I've learned a lot more about you because I'm holding up the unpublished manuscript for Bittersweet, where you're heavily mentioned. And for those who aren't aware of Susan Cain's new work, where David's research plays a significant role. And then the other book I just wanted to throw up because it's a friend of yours is Transcend, where you're also mentioned pretty highly. And I would encourage any of the listeners to check out either one of those because they're both great pieces of work. So learning about you through those means, I really just want to understand how did you get your start in studying this consciousness and self-transcendent states? Yeah, well, first of all, you're lucky to have Susan Cain's new book. I haven't, I haven't seen the full book yet. Um, of course, I'm a big fan of Scott Barry Kaufman's uh, book. So how did I get into this topic? So I study brief experiences that have long-lasting, persisting positive effects. I'm particularly interested in experiences that we could call an altered state of consciousness. So these are experiences that happen almost entirely uh, behind the eyes, so to speak, so in one's mind. And interestingly, sometimes these fairly brief experiences can have effects that last for weeks, months, years, even decades. My interest in this topic was sparked by an experience of my own. There's the phrase, uh, research is me-search, and that's, that's very often the case in one way or another. Uh, for me, this was a spontaneous experience, so it, was, it, it didn't have any obvious trigger, but I was in my undergrad dorm room, and a feeling of heat came into my chest. So I felt this feeling of heat. I was curious about it. It was a, it was a strange sensation. That feeling of heat spread over my whole body. And at some point, uh, a thought or a voice in my mind said, this is love. At which point I went uh, kind of totally into my mind to this very uh, altered state. I felt like I could see boundaryless horizons stretching out all around me. And this feeling of love just reached the boiling point. So after what felt like a week, but was probably only a few minutes, I opened my eyes, my body was laughing and crying at the same time. Everything looked and felt new. I felt refreshed. And most of all, I was thinking, what the f*** just happened to me? <laughs> and that question has guided my research for uh, over a decade now. And so what I'm interested in is what are these experiences? You know, I quickly 
became apparent to me that I was not alone in having had one of these kinds of experiences. William James, a century ago, talked about these experiences. Psychologists and neuroscientists have studied them over the decades. This just became a point of deep and enduring fascination for me. And do these effects persist? And how common are these effects? How common are these experiences? There's so many questions to consider. And that's my area of research. So I have been fortunate enough to have four astronauts who've appeared on the podcast. One, one coming up is Nicole Stott, uh, one of my longest term friends. I've known him for 30 plus years. Chris Cassidy uh, was the chief astronaut up until recently when he retired. Each one I've, I've talked to, regardless of whether it's been Wendy Lawrence, who was back in the space shuttle program, or Kayla Barron, who's on the ISS as we speak, they all have told me of this overview effect when they're up there. And, and Chris said, it's one thing looking down, but the first time he did a spacewalk and he entered the void of space, he, he said, your mind just cannot contemplate where it is. His experience, and it was the same for all of them, is that they have this universal feeling of oneness. Someone is wondering what a transcendent experience is. Is that a good example of one? I think it's a great example. It's a surprising example, I think. At least it was for me. You know, I mentioned William James, the psychologist and philosopher who gathered together a whole lot of accounts of experiences like mine a century ago. You've spoken to Dave Vago and others who study meditation. And so you read about these kinds of experiences in meditative contexts and monastic contexts. Um, but I've always been interested in gathering as many of these accounts together as I can. And in the process of doing that, I stumbled upon first one astronaut experience, and then dozens, and then many dozens of astronauts reporting yeah, this phenomenon called the overview effect. So this intense feeling of awe and wonder uh, from viewing Earth from, from orbit. And so I've, I've written a piece on this, trying to ground this extraordinary experience in what we know uh, about psychological processes that might be responsible for this, this kind of wondrous moment. I think it might benefit the listeners if they're not familiar with this. There are different types of self-transcendent experience ranging from awe to what Maslow described as a peak experience to mythical experiences, which I think James was really involved in. What are some of the different experiences and how do they differ and how you as a person might experience them. Yeah, so the way that I think about this is, I think we can call these experiences self-transcendent experiences. There's a lot of different ones, but they seem similar in that they're all intensely altered states of consciousness involving some degree of self-diminishment and feelings of connectedness. And these range in intensity. So you have the kinds of more subtle daily experiences like flow when you're really absorbed in a challenging task and time, you know, you look up at the clock and hours have gone by and you didn't even realize it or mindfulness. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have these more transformative, intense, once in a lifetime type experiences. We could call those peak or mystical experiences. And then somewhere in the middle, we have things like awe, you know, awe is an emotion where we perceive vastness and our, our jaw drops and we get chills 
And I think the overview effect is probably somewhere in this middle ground for, for a lot of the astronauts who are describing them. This definition of STEs, let's just use that acronym. You did it with what I would think would be the superstars of expertise in this area. I couldn't believe it. You had Hood, Newberg, Vago, uh, Haight, and yourself. How did you compile that group of people and how profound was that paper to someone who might not be in the psychology field to laying out a new framework for what STEs are? Yeah, that paper took many years to write. You know, writing scientific academic papers, there's a, there's a learning curve involved. And it took me a long time uh, to put that together. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for the mentorship of those uh, scientists and thinkers that you just named. Um, the idea there was to try to look at the most intense sort of strange experiences that were, were seen at that time as, as fringe topics of scientific research, like a peak or mystical type experience, and say, actually, these kinds of experiences are part of this wider spectrum or, or continu continuum of experiences that we know something about. And so we can look at all of these kinds of experiences and they're all amenable to scientific research. And so it was this attempt to widen the scope of what we were focusing our scientific research on. Now with psychedelic research, resurgent things like peak and mystical type experiences seem pretty mainstream. And it's hard to remember that just a few years ago, when we were writing that paper, they, they seemed quite fringe. I'll, I'll also say in terms of, of mentorship, uh, you know, the, the, the process of writing that paper and the, the dozens or maybe hundreds of drafts <laughs> that, that I went through um, is, is important to reflect on, I think, because there is this training process that's involved with, with becoming a scientist. I can smile and laugh about it now, but <laughs> there are a number <laughs> of nights and weekends that, you know, I spent sitting in front of my computer working on that. I, I remember one interesting thing about J John Haidt was a, a, a big part of that paper. And he, he made me stop working on it until I could think of uh, a framing metaphor uh, and so I ended up writing up a list of dozens of, of different metaphors uh, that he could pick from and say, okay, you, you, this is a good metaphor. Now keep this in the back of your mind as you're writing. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that you bring up that paper. All these, these moments of mentorship are coming to mind for me. You have had some incredible mentors, including your mentor when you were getting your doctorate at Pennsylvania. How did those mentors influence where you are today and the study that you're doing? Oh, uh, tremendously. I owe them uh, a deep debt of gratitude. So after my experience, after I became really obsessed, I, I would say, in the study of these experiences, um, there were certain key books and scientific articles that I was really drawn to. Andrew Newberg, uh, Marty Seligman, and Roland Griffiths were the key scientists that I really hope to work with in the world. They all just happened to be in the mid-Atlantic region, which was 
unbelievably lucky. <laughs> and they were all patient and tolerant enough to, to deal with uh, a young person who had a, a very, very deep interest in a topic and to, to field that person's questions <laughs> and help them. Uh, and that person's me, of course. So first, starting with Andy Newberg, he's a neuroscientist. He's done a lot of neuroimaging research on monks and nuns and meditators and really trying to look at what's happening in the brain uh, during spiritual or self-transcendent type experiences. And I worked with Andy Newberg in my pre-doctoral time. So this was before I, I got into a program and I'm really grateful that he was able to, to tolerate the wide ranging questions I was bringing up. He taught me uh, to, to bring a very balanced approach uh, to this topic and to, to bracket or to set aside these deep metaphysical or theological questions. You know, you, you don't need to decide on whether or not God exists. If someone says they've had a spiritual experience, whether what the ultimate truth value of that may or may not be, you can simply focus on what people say, what people report, and what's happening in their brain as they're reporting those things. Uh, so, so he really impressed upon me that point of, of maintaining a kind of methodological agnosticism when engaging in scientific research of this kind, and a humility to say, look, we don't know a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of things we don't know and a good scientist is able to say that. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength in terms of scientific thinking. And so, yeah, deeply grateful for, with, for my work with Andy Newberg. And we have a book coming out, The Varieties of, of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives. And that, that'll come out in just a couple months. So maybe we can talk about that later. Um, but I'll, I'll move to, to Marty Seligman. So he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, I worked in his lab and studied under him as during my doctoral training as his PhD student. Uh, and, and Marty really taught me to, to think big and to think boldly and to, to set aside my nervousness uh, of studying this topic. And so I think my time with him convinced me that Look, if I really want to make a contribution in the scientific understanding of this topic, I have to be all in and I have to work my hardest. A demanding mentor got lots of papers and data analysis sent back to me and said, look, you can do better. He convinced me uh, that it's important to be on a given topic and to, to do what you can to the, the largest extent that you can. If you're going to do it, uh, do it right. And then Roland Griffiths is, was my postdoctoral uh, mentor at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Roland Griffiths has been studying psychedelics and psilocybin for two decades now. He's almost single-handedly uh, contributed to this, uh, what they call the, the psychedelic renaissance of research, this re-emerging uh, of this very fascinating uh, field of scientific research. Um, Roland is a remarkable person. People say there's the forest and the trees, there's the details and there's the big picture. Roland's able to zoom in and out with an agility 
that is just world-class. He can think about the future of a field going through decades and thinking in terms of large regulatory processes, but then also find a comma that's out of place (laughs) and go through a paper with you sentence by sentence. Remarkable mind and a a deep uh, kindness as well. So there's been mentorship that I don't feel like I, I fully deserve because it's been so extraordinary. It's been world-class and I, I just can't say how grateful I am for those experiences. We'll be right back to my interview with Dr. David Yaden. Finding a doctor, that has to be one of the most inconvenient things that we have to do. And recently I was searching for a new dermatologist when I stumbled upon ZocDoc. And no one's better at giving you the tools to find the perfect doctor than ZocDoc. There are some amazing doctors out there, but let's face it, the only ones that matter are the ones who actually take your insurance. And who wants to waste time hunting down Aunt Linda's cash-only chiropractor anyhow? ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are not only patient-reviewed, they also take your insurance and are available when you need them. Go to ZocDoc.com PassionStruck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com PassionStruck, ZocDoc.com PassionStruck. And please support those who support our show. Now, Back to my interview with Dr. David Yaden. I remember one of my favorite mentors seemed very much like yours because I thought I would turn in great work and he would always tell me, you can write better. You can research better. What you're doing is great, but it could be exceptional. For me, it was a huge impact in my life because it it really taught me that you had to go that extra level if you want to move from being average to being extraordinary in what you do. So it sounds like you had the pick of the letter for what you're doing. I did want to ask you, I'm very interested in Andy Newberg's work. I had on the podcast a few months ago, a personal friend of his, uh, Jay Lombard, who's a neurologist. Jay wrote a book in the mind of God, and it was based in many ways on the way that having fMRI images impacted his ability to treat patients. It was almost like seeing into the soul of a person. Like you could just witness things that before were, you just couldn't comprehend. How much do you use those types of imaging in the work that you're doing now at Johns Hopkins? Me personally, not very much. Uh, There was a period in my training where I thought that I would do more neuroimaging. Um, It ends up not answering the kinds of questions I'm most interested in. And so I think neuroimaging is an amazing technological breakthrough. And I have a huge amount of respect for my colleagues uh, who are neuroscientists. Um, But I find that sometimes psychological, behavioral kinds of research get underplayed because they're generally more relevant to our our day-to-day lives. And so if you're interested in whether or not meditation, say, increases well-being and decreases stress, there's not a whole lot that a a neuroimage of someone's mind, someone's brain while meditating will show you uh, that 
actually just keeping track of that person and asking them uh, how it's affecting them in a systematic way uh, using self-report and behavioral measures, that will usually get you further in terms of your understanding. And so, of course, neuroimaging is absolutely fascinating. Of course, it's deeply important scientifically. Uh, but I have to say, I'm, I'm no expert uh, on that particular topic. And I, I find the psychological and behavioral research actually more compelling. I think that is a good jumping off point to my next question, which is, how does self-transcendence through psychedelics differ from the experience through meditation phenomenologically? It's an interesting question. It's an important one. Uh, it's how... I know Roland Griffiths got involved with studying psychedelics was through his interest in meditation and meditation research. I think there are undeniable similarities phenomenologically or in terms of how people say that they feel when you look at a, a meditation retreat. I mean, a serious foray into meditation. I'm not talking about the kind of 10 to 20 minutes of mindfulness that I do uh, on a daily basis, just to manage stress. I'm talking about days of 10 hours a day uh, doing, doing a, a meditation retreat of that kind. People fairly reliably report substantially altered states of consciousness that we could call a self-transcendent experience. And there seem to be certain qualities of that experience that like we've been talking about this feeling of, of connectedness uh, feeling as if you're not so focused on yourself uh, feelings of increased positive mood and and compassion and concern for other people uh, but also sometimes negative experiences people feeling overwhelmed uh, feeling as if uh things seem strange, uh, so that's, it's not all positive. Uh, and get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with indeed our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. That's important to recognize. 
but there do seem to be a suite of changes phenomenologically uh, that occur in the meditation context that we also see reliably in our laboratory context where we administer psychedelics like psilocybin uh, to, to study participants. So I think this is an open question, but there are real similarities to explore there. So then it would lead me to then, how do you map the self-transcendent mind? What does a flourishing mind, brain, body look like? And how does that differ from a normal psychological or social level? That's a great question. That's a tough question. <laughs> I'm wondering how peak experiences only happen very rarely in our life. You might even say mystical the same way, but ah, you could experience a lot more. I'm very interested in the zone of optimal anxiety or the flow state where I think you can achieve peak performance. How does one get more into the SDE realm and then how is that different from a, being in your normal mode? Yeah. So one thing that I'll say is that a lot of psychologists give out advice that I think is unwarranted on the, on the basis of the evidence that they have. And so I, I want to make this point that a lot of my work is very descriptive. I'm just interested in understanding these experiences, understanding what's going on. I mean, my experience was extraordinarily beneficial for me in all kinds of ways in my actual life. And I think a lot of the evidence points in that direction. But I want to make sure not to be too glib or even just generally encourage based on a lot of the evidence saying these self-transcendent experiences is going to solve all your problems. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, there's probably uh, a lot of risks, increased risks with an attempt to try to have a quick fix and go out and have one of these very psychologically intense experiences. Uh, so I, I think that's an important point. I'm, I'm largely interested in explaining and understanding the kinds of experiences that people are already reporting. Um, so I want to make that point. <laughs> And yet, of course, we want to know how this can benefit our lives. We've seen things like mindfulness meditation seems to increase well-being and, and decrease anxiety and stress a little bit. Uh, it seems like when people have experiences of awe uh, that they end up having a boost in their, their mood and then their pro-social behavior. Maybe there are some uh, takeaways here. Uh, but it might be more worthwhile for people to, to focus on the experiences that they're already having. And I think that we do have these uh, fairly regularly and we do know how to put ourselves into those states uh, through the course of our, our daily life. In terms of what's going on in the brain and, and the body and the mind, so to speak, spring, uh, I'll use a, a spring metaphor. I think that there's this tendency uh, to have a lot of focus on ourselves uh, and, and it's almost like a, a bud uh, where all the petals are, are focused inward. And during these experiences, I think the, the increase in positive mood and the, the attentional changes 
result in something like a blooming flower where the petals are now pointing outward. And I think when someone has one of these experiences, they go from being very, very focused on themselves, uh, their own feelings, their own uh, enjoyment, uh, their own status, etc. these kinds of self-focused ruminations that drive us all crazy. Uh, and during these moments, you get a relief from that. And furthermore, you feel this sense of connection to other people and things uh, around you. Um, and I think just like a blooming flower, it's a beautiful mental state uh, to, to witness in, in yourself uh, as well as in other people. I think that's a great explanation. I wanted to touch back on something that you said a few minutes ago. I also have an upcoming book that'll come out after yours. One of my chapters is around the psychology of progress. And one of the things I talk about is that there have been many different times in my life where I have found time was malleable. Sometimes time slows down, sometimes it speeds up. How can awe alter time perception? Yeah, well, congratulations on the book. I'm looking forward to checking that out. And I'm curious to hear what those times in your life were. You've picked up on something really important here. There seems to be a correspondence between the sense of time, the sense of self, and one's sense of the space around them. These things track together in these altered states of consciousness. So it seems as if when the self feels as if it's going away, at the same time, we feel this deepened sense of connection uh, around us. And then time is also changing. Uh, so there's some interesting issues here, I think neurobiologically uh, and maybe cognitively that uh, it's just a lot of very open questions. And so we don't know exactly why, uh, but we do know that it pretty reliably seems to occur in terms of what people report. And so most people, uh, when they experience awe, have a kind of time dilation effect. So if you think back to the last time you experienced intense sweeping scenery, natural beauty, you know, art, or witnessing excellent performance or highly virtuous performance, these are all triggers for awe. You often feel this time dilation effect. It's almost like a timeless moment that you get. And that's a very interesting thing. And it seems to relate to the meaning of the experience as well, which can result in persisting positive effects. I'll just give an example of one for me. I happened to be working for Lowe's Home Improvement at the time, and Lowe's has their own fleet of jets that we would often take around. And I happened to be on a West Coast store visit. And as we were leaving Las Vegas, the pilot looks back into the plane and says, I have a treat for you. I got clearance to fly super low over the Grand Canyon. So we flew, I think, at an altitude, maybe a thousand feet, 1500 feet, it probably only lasted five minutes. But to me, it, it seemed like it was 45 minutes because I was in just looking down and the unbelievable sights that you're able to see. That's a, a simple explanation of someone maybe in a peak performance mode, whether they've been an athlete or at work giving a presentation or something else. You've probably experienced 
where maybe you're running a race and it's supposed to take you 25 minutes and it feels like it, it took you five minutes or you give a bad presentation, you feel like you're up there for an hour and a half and it's been five minutes. I really do feel like you can perfect some of this and make time work to your betterment. That's kind of what I explored in the book. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to, to, to reading your book. It's interesting how awe already fits into our lives. Particularly, think about when you go on a trip, you generally seek out a few things. One is hedonic enjoyment stuff, right? The good food, the good drink, um, etc. But then most people also seek out awe experiences. They'll 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 go on a hike uh, up a up a mountain or or somewhere. Um, breathtakingly beautiful, or, or you'll go to a monument that's massive or has important implications, or you'll go to a museum where you see art or history that's mind-blowing. We already kind of naturally seek this out, the kinds of things that we watch uh, in our entertainment. We love to see excellence and moral virtue. I think awe is already playing a role in our lives, and it's something that we can probably think about uh, and be mindful of and, and probably maximize more of. Yeah, I kind of agree more. I wanted to jump in really quick to Johns Hopkins. I recently competed in the four by four by 48 challenge. It's a David Goggins challenge. Wow. Yeah. Did. David Goggins. Yeah, wow. I did it on, on behalf and of you're, three. You're still, you're smiling yeah. and you're, uh, you're alive. <laughs> Smiling and alive. I did it with about 40 former veterans, almost all of them uh, special forces. And the reason I was interested in doing it is I get treated by one of the nonprofits that was there, the Warrior Angels Foundation, which treats traumatic brain injury for people who have post-concussion syndrome. But there were two others there. One was the Heroic Hearts Project, and the other was called VETS. And they are both solely focused on treating veterans who have post-traumatic stress disorder with psychedelics. So whether that's ayahuasca, psilocybin, I think it's ketamine or other things. Yeah. MDMA, I got I, psilocybin, ketamine. Yeah. All of these are, are being explored as, as PTSD treatments. There was a doctor who had been with the VA for 30 years who was completely and adamantly against the use of any of these until she saw the results. And most people who go through CPT or cognitive behavioral therapies, there's about a 30% efficacy in helping people with PTSD from what I've researched. But what MDMA, which I, I think is in phase three trials and psilocybin, which is in phase two are showing is that they're having upwards of 66 to 70% efficacy which blew her mind away that they could be that much more substantial. So my understanding is Johns Hopkins has really been in depth with this for well over 15 years. And can you explain some of the preeminent work that you guys are doing? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, yeah, congratulations on that event. It's an interesting combination of excellence and moral virtue there. And so as you were saying it, I reflected, oh, I'm saying, wow, I'm actually, this is a little bit of awe right here, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, so Johns Hopkins, this, the, the, in, in the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, and now in the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, 
this is a this is a lab that I have been a fan of uh, for for the, those entire fifteen years. I've included them in um, hundreds of presentations, and and now I'm very lucky to be joining that group. Roland Griffiths, Fred Barrett, Matt Johnson, Al. Natalie, Sandy, there's too many people to name brilliant researchers and, and scientists that I'm learning from there. The science, the data on psychedelics seems extraordinary. And I want to put a big caveat and qualification there in that the potential does seem extraordinary, but there needs to be so much more rigorous research in order to have really more precise estimates of the efficacy. And so a lot of the work has been fairly exploratory. Uh, and we're just now getting to the point where we're able to get the funding uh, and, and the will to do these very large, very well-controlled studies. And so in my view, what the actual data show when, we're, when we think about the efficacy and the potential of, of psychedelic substances and things like MDMA and psilocybin. I think what the data show is that the super enthusiasts are wrong and the super skeptics are wrong. So the, <laughs> the, the super enthusiasts think that it's a cure-all, put it in the water, for example, that, that kind of thinking, I don't think we have evidence for that. There's real risks and uh, these experiences need to be I think, administered in a safe and supportive way. Uh, there are real risks for some people. That message needs to get out there. It really does. And on the other hand, the kind of alarmist thinking like, oh, this is, you know, these are drugs or these produce a, a mental state that's like psychosis. That's wrong as well to show that for many people, the experience is challenging yet positive. So people often compare it to like running a marathon or climbing a mountain. There's difficulty and challenge, but also positive emotions as well. There are risks, but it appears that many people have persisting positive effects that last for weeks or months, sometimes even more maybe. Um, and, and that's extraordinary. And so I think I, I'm still willing to call the potential extraordinary with all of those caveats in place that there's real risk. Uh, and that this is nothing like uh, a panacea. We still need a lot of really good research done on this topic. And we also need to think structurally. These substances will not solve issues with our healthcare system and our lack of, of investments in helping people who really need it. I think those are all very good points, but I am so thankful that someone of the prestige of Johns Hopkins is on the forefront of this, because if you're going to put validity in anyone's finding, it would be an institution like the one you're now working for. Over the past month, you are the third person um, who I've interviewed who has actually met the Dalai Lama, which to me is quite remarkable. Not <laughs> only did you meet him, but he asked for a private audience with you. And what's interesting is the two oh, other people. Definitely the, definitely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make that clear. Why is he so interested in neuroscience research? It's a great question. So, so I'll tell the story just to make clear uh, that the Dalai Lama didn't go looking for me. <laughs> Very much the reverse. It actually started with someone who you might know or be familiar with, uh, Adam Grant. 
Uh, he's a professor at, at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, and he runs something he calls reciprocity rings. And this is an activity that he uses to try to make the point that your current network probably can provide you with most of the things that you want out of life. Uh, it's there, we just don't realize it. And so during one of these reciprocity rings where people just say something that they want to see happen in their lives and the other people uh, provide them with uh, an idea or a, or a network contact or, or something of that, that kind, and I, I didn't really have anything uh, of, uh, that I that I wanted to ask for. Someone asked to about meeting someone, some, some celebrity or something, and that planted the seed. And I said, well, if I really thought about who I'd want to meet in the world, uh, it would be the Dalai Lama. I, I really admire his his books, uh, you know, on meditation and the his interest in science strikes me as exceptional, particularly for a religious leader. You know, so he says things like, if science discovers something that disproves some aspect of Buddhism, then Buddhism has to change. And, and so that kind of commitment uh, to science and to truth uh, is, is extremely impressive to me. So I said, well, I'd like to meet the Dalai Lama. Uh, and, uh, and Adam said, well, I actually maybe have a connection to the former prime minister of Tibet and may maybe this could actually happen. Um, and so I was, I was backpacking in India and I was able to, to meet him, uh, the Dalai Lama, in the sort of backstage, so to speak, at a, at a presentation that he was, he was giving to monks. A really extraordinary uh, moment, but just visceral kindness. I mean, uh, yeah, I usually I'm kind of nervous meeting someone that I really admire. And I just felt totally and completely at ease uh, immediately, which was amazing. Um, and we, we talked about scientific research. And so he, he sort of grilled me on, on what psychology and neuroscience was telling us about uh, meditation and, and meditation experiences. As I was researching you and researching the Dalai Lama, His Holiness has proposed that the only way to combat destructive emotions, things like anger, fear, hatred, is through the cultivation of positive emotions like love, compassion, and patience. And he argues that we must train ourselves to sustain optimal emotional experience and do it through expanded states of consciousness and self-transcendent experience. Basically, we don't just exit the ego, we exercise the soul. Why is what he's saying regarded as so revolutionary, especially coming from him? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so one point of clarification, which is, is maybe interesting, is that Buddhists don't believe in a soul or a self. So I'm guessing he was probably using those terms to, to aid communication. I think what he's emphasizing there is something important with the caveat that if we really want to improve uh, people's uh, well-being, that structural issues, uh, like having a, a strong social safety net is probably the easiest way to, to go about that. 
Um, but if we're talking in terms of what psychological interventions uh, can be can be done in addition to a number of self-regulation strategies, I think that focusing on positive emotion can be important and that maybe self-transcendent experiences uh, play a role. And I think he's emphasizing something to an extent that I wouldn't emphasize to that much. I would say things like positive emotional experiences and self-transcendent experiences play a role uh, in, in a flourishing life. But there can be real risks of overplaying that. Um, so you, you, you notice that I put a lot of caveats and qualifications in. I, I can't help it. It's just part of uh, you know, trying to do science communication uh, and, and making sure that I'm not uh, overstepping what the data show. So having said that, for me, self-transcendent experiences have, have played a transformatively positive effect in my life. And, and that is certainly the case uh, for some people. Interestingly enough, I think you'll like this chapter in my book as well as I go into what is the difference between why most people are spontaneously engaged in their life instead of being consciously engaged and my reckonings of why and, and how to become more consciously engaged. But enough about my book. Your book sounds like it's going to be remarkable, and it's actually being published by Oxford University Press. Can't ask for a better publisher than that. So I was hoping that you could talk about the varieties of spiritual experiences and what you guys are hoping to convey in this book. Yeah, and I hope we can provide a link. Uh, we should have a pre-order link uh, very soon. So this book is about something that our society is not very good at, which is thinking with nuance on an interesting topic. I find so many uh, topics of interest to me and, and others, people end up adopting one extreme view or another. And so what we're trying to do with this book is to focus on what I think is a, a powerfully important topic, which are these self-transcendent or spiritual experiences that we've been talking about. In order to scientifically study this topic, we need to set aside certain questions that science can address. And William James, uh, the psychologist and philosopher, 100 years ago, made this exact point. And yet you see a lot of people who don't respect that. And I think that that's an important uh, concept to keep in mind as we, as we do this kind of scientific work. And then, as I said, with the psychedelic research, the data on these experiences prove the super enthusiasts wrong and the super skeptics. <laughs> They're not all positive all the time. Someone doesn't just one and done have one of these experiences and then they're transformed and enlightened forever. That just doesn't happen. It's not how our, our psychology works, not how life works. Um, on the other hand, though, the super skeptics are wrong. You know, there's a long tradition going back to Freud of, of assuming that these experiences are pathological or part of a mental disorder. And the data just do not support that. Uh, most people actually find these experiences deeply meaningful and benefit from them, uh, sometimes long after the experience has ended. So we're really trying to interject uh, nuance and, and data into a topic that has often uh, fallen into 
extremes. And so we bring forward what William James had to say on this topic, but then we review uh, what psychology and neuroscience uh, research has shown in the past few decades. And so we find that one out of every four, or one out of every three people have had one of these experiences. And so this book will allow you to understand those experiences, to spot them in the wild, to understand them on a deeper level. That leads me to in that 2017 paper that I read, there was a quote in there, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, basically said that your research found that on this topic, Freud was wrong and James was correct. I might have it wrong, but can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah. So William James, classic psychologist, of course, Sigmund Freud, uh, classic psychologist. Freud basically thought that these experiences, that self-transcendent type experiences, um, were symptomatic of mental illness. He had never had one of these experiences, uh, but he said, these just seem strange. So maybe in the context of romantic love, feeling this degree of connection, maybe that makes sense. But these experiences of feeling at one with all things, there's no way that that can be healthy. Of course, he had no data whatsoever. He was just sort of sitting on his chair, uh, his armchair, so to speak, uh, making these proclamations. Uh, and then he even advanced a theory, which is that what these experiences consist of is memories of one being in their mother's womb coming to the surface. And contemporary psychologists and scientists think that's just silly. Uh, it's just kind of an absurd theory, really. Um, and, and Sigmund Freud, of course, is a household name, whereas William James is not a household name. We hope that, that he will be more. It's part of the reason why we wrote this book. But William James had a very, very nuanced and qualified take on these experiences. And he said, we have to set aside certain questions that we can't scientifically address, but we can look at what triggers these experiences, what they feel like, how people report them, what's happening in the brain and the body and how they impact people's lives. Uh, and his assessment actually fits pretty closely with all of the evidence that we've gathered in the past few decades, which is most people benefit from them. Some people benefit tremendously and some people uh, don't. Some people actually need to seek uh, therapeutic support because the experience feels too overwhelming. So, so William James provided this kind of nuance and balance and evidence-based assessment uh, that I think our society is sorely lacking. And I think we need more of that mental discipline in our discourse. You're probably not going to believe this, but when I was being treated for PTSD, some of the diagnoses according to DSM-5, I was like, how in the world are they coming up with that? So I actually read the entire DSM-5 manual. And the thing that I am surprised about, especially right here. <laughs> with what we're talking about here, everything that they talk about was self-transcendent or these feelings that we've been discussing, they treat almost as a negative disorder and not ever could I find a reference where it's treated from a positive standpoint. I'm no expert in this. I'm not a psychologist, but I thought that was revealing to me if what I'm saying is accurate. 
Yeah. I mean, it gets really complicated. This is a, my wife is a psychiatrist. I should defer this question to her. Um, <laughs> Bring her on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really complicated to differentiate these experiences, um, you know, to, to say they're all good or all bad, so to speak, uh, is, is difficult. And when you get into um, very complicated kinds of mental states, there can be processing of very challenging, difficult psychological material. It ends up being the kind of thing that you can't make broad generalizations about. And here we get to the point where in, in any given individual case, um, ideally, you have a clinician who's, who's able to appreciate the data to show that um, sometimes positive states can be intertwined in complex ways with kind of mental disorder that can be treated. And I think part of the point of, of our book is to show uh, the kinds of experiences that do have positive potential and that those experiences, they can come in for me, for example, in a, in a fairly neutral, you know, spontaneous context, they can come uh, during contexts where people are doing well and thriving in life. They can also come in very challenging and difficult contexts. Uh, it's interesting. And I think we're all learning about these experiences and, and how they relate uh, to clinical care in real time. And it's, a, it's an exciting time because I think we are making progress. Well, it sure is. Thanks for clarifying that. And I had one final question for you. In your work, you researched a phenomenon of being called to a particular field or endeavor and the sense of transcendent purpose. And surprisingly, amongst 30% to 40% of the population has that sense. And I was wondering, did that surprise you? And why is it important to do what you're meant to do or being called to do? Yeah, so it did surprise me uh, that about 30% of people say that they feel a sense of calling to their work, that it, it fulfills a deep need for meaning and purpose, uh, that they'd even do the work for free <laughs> if that had to be done. And it fits very closely with uh, their sense of themselves, their, their identity. And so when you survey large numbers of people, about a third will say that their their job is just a paycheck, uh, and they usually in these cases they have other things in their life uh, that they feel uh, have deep meaning and purpose and and fulfill them. But their job is not really one of them. It's just a paycheck. For some people, their job is a career. It's part of their identity, uh, but still, uh, what they really care about is is outside of that domain. Uh, and then some people, some of us have a, have a calling uh, where work, what they're doing with their work life is highly uh, meaningful uh, and, and purposeful and, and intertwined with identity in, in a deep way. And it's interesting because the, the kinds of people who report having a calling, they're not necessarily the ones that you'd expect. There are some jobs where there's probably uh, a lot more people report this kind of calling, maybe scientists, I'm not sure. But when you look at janitors at a hospital, the people who report feeling a calling in their work uh, say that they're, what they're doing is a, a kind of healing 
because they're creating a, a safe and sanitary environment. Uh, and that's absolutely true. That's absolutely the case. And so this is another interesting case where what I find most interesting is descriptive work on this topic to say, look, some people feel called. Uh, some people feel don't. Some people don't feel called. There are different dynamics at play in each of in each of those cases. I'm not saying go find a calling uh, because sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes that's not um, feasible, and sometimes that can sound very naive, given the difficult reality uh, that a lot of people are are living in. And so, uh, yeah, having a calling and the process of arriving at a calling, I find very interesting. Um, but again, I, I, I want to put in those qualifications. If a listener was interested in learning more, how can they find out? Yeah, so the, my book is coming out, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience with Oxford University Press. There's a lot of what we talked about today will be in there. Unfortunately, all of those caveats and qualifications are in there. <laughs> uh, that's just part of what I think is important about communicating science. But we cover all kinds of psychological and, and neuroscientific research on self-transcendent spiritual experiences. And then uh, my Twitter is at ExistWell. And so they can connect with me there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I found it just a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, John. Me too. Big thanks to Dr. David Yaden and all things David related will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you buy any of the books from any of the guests on the show. It all goes to supporting the show and keeping it free for all our listeners. Transcripts are in the show notes and videos are posted on YouTube at John R. Miles. Advertisers, deals, and discount codes are located all in one place at passionstruck.com deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John our miles both on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you want to know how I manage to book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. Build those relationships before you need them. Most of the guests on the show actually subscribe to the podcast and give us ideas for topics and guests. Come join us. You'll be an amazing company. You're about to hear a preview from the Passion Struck podcast featuring former Army Ranger Jesse Gould, the founder of the Heroic Hearts Project, which is helping veterans recover from the wounds of trauma and combat through psychedelic therapies. My goal is if we can provide more veterans help and health care and prevent more suicides. Whoever wants to be involved with it, as long as it's not limiting other involvement, then so be it. People want to are able to make money, but that shouldn't limit people from doing it. And the community access shouldn't be so cost restrictive that the same people who can't have access won't be able to have access. And that's kind of what we're fighting for. Remember, we rise above by lifting others. So share the show with those you love. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with somebody who could use this inspiration in their lives. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Remember, live life passion struck.